I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new ideas and books in business. So joining me today is an old friend, Maro Guillen. Maro is a professor of management at the Wharton School, and he's one of the world's foremost experts on what might be called megatrends, global megatrends. He's a best-selling author. His book, 2030, which we spoke about on this podcast some months ago, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything, was named as the book of the year by Financial Times. And today, he's produced another book, also in the domain of megatrends, called The Perennials, The Megatrends Creating the Post-Generational Society, which is out from St. Martin's Press in August 2023 where he discusses the dissolution of the traditional sequential model of life and the consequences of the post-generational society for business and society. So look forward to discussing that with you, Mauro, and congratulations on the book, and thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you so much, Martin, for inviting me. Uh, So the sequential model of life is essentially, for the last uh, 140 years since we put in place universal schooling and pension systems, is that uh, we would progress in our lives through different stages. So When we were very young, we would play, then we would study, then we would work, and finally retire. And of course, there's a lot of changes in the world that have uh, put a lot of pressure on this kind of a model. And it's also a model that limits us, because it tells us what is it that we should do, depending on our age. And uh, now, with technological change, with all sorts of other things going on in the world, it is too rigid a model. It's just a uh, straitjacket. So before we get to the change in the model, tell us how this sequential model of life came about. I guess it's a fairly old idea. I mean, Shakespeare talks about the four ages of man, and in some ways it fits the progress of the human lifespan. But how did it come about? Well, in its modern manifestation, it came about in the late 19th century when we put in place universal schooling. And therefore, then everybody would go to school at some point before they would start working. And the other thing that happened, if you remember, was that Germany was the pioneer in terms of state pension systems. And then other countries around the world adopted that. So that also placed an upper bound on how long we would work for. Once those two things were put in place, then essentially we have four stages. So before we go to school, we play. While we're in school, we learn. Then between school and getting a pension, we work. And once we get a pension, we retire. So what are the disadvantages of that model? Because in some ways, it sounds very reasonable. Presumably, we're we're too young to learn at a certain point, and then we can learn, and then we can apply our learnings. and then we become too old to work. It sounds quite reasonable. What are the hidden disadvantages of such a system? It's very reasonable when you first take a look at it, but it was particularly a very good model, let's say, from the early 1900s to the end of the 20th century, but no longer, right? Because now, essentially, technology makes everything that we learn obsolete very quickly. So we need to actually engage in lifelong learning. We need to go back to school. So going to school only once, which is what the sequential model predicates, is no longer tenable, right? The other problem, of course, is that uh, we're living longer and longer and longer. And therefore, you know, it gets boring, right? I mean, most people report boredom and lack of social connections when they retire. And so we have to come up with a different system that enables us to live long lives, but very fulfilling lives. And also a system where we can learn as we go, not just uh, when we're young, a system that is a little bit more flexible, a little bit more open to innovation, a little bit more open to individuals taking the initiative. And also, by the way, keep in mind that the sequential model was meant for men. It is actually not a very good fit for women, right? Because of you know the different role that we play in reproduction. And essentially, 
the older model, the sequential model, was very taxing on women, made it very difficult for them to have a professional life. Women also need a little bit more flexibility built into the system. Right. So the alternative, this new state that we're going to, is what you're calling the post-generational society. What are the characteristics of the post-generational model? Well, essentially, what we have is a population that increasingly is becoming perennials, right? This is what uh, the model calls for. So what are perennials? What is this post-generational society? Perennials are people who don't think and don't act their age. So in other words, that they do things at different ages that in the past we would only be allowed to do at certain ages, right? So for example, these days we have entrepreneurs who are in their teen years, right? We also have learners in their 40s or 50s, even their 60s or 70s out there. We have people beyond normal retirement age working either full-time or part-time. And we also have, of course, and this is uh, actually really, really important, people living together and interacting together with other generations, not just with their own generation. And this is happening in the workplace. It's happening in consumer markets. It's also happening in the terms of our living arrangements with the rise of multi-generational households. Right. So it's not a new uniformity then. It's the destruction of uniformity. It's many different paths and stages and pacings. Is that right? Absolutely right. I think it's abandoning the compartmentalized nature of the sequential model that was too rigid and it was more like a straitjacket that was telling us, you have to do this at this age, and if you don't do that at that age, you're a failure. Right. So you mentioned already a couple of forces that are bringing about this change, extended lifespans and also the, the rapid obsolescence of skills. Are those the two main forces or are there others which are pushing us into this new state? Those are two of the three main causes. The third one is that we stay healthy both mentally and physically for a longer period of time. That's the third thing. So there are essentially three. Longer life expectancy, longer health span, right? That's a technical term. And then lastly, technology making our knowledge, our skills obsolete much faster than in the past. So presumably this has all sorts of implications for the different stakeholders. So let's go through some of them. How does this change the role of government in navigating this transition and being useful doing whatever the government needs to do in this new, new state? Well, I think the government should have a very vested interest in changing the system because, as you know, one of the big problems is the future viability of state pensions. So we need to have a little bit more flexibility built into the system so that people can you know, move back and forth from work and learning and so on and so forth. And this is going to benefit governments. But let's not forget, governments are also big employers. So if governments start changing how they see people, how they see their own employees, that can have ripple effects throughout the economy. So governments can change regulations, but they can also change their employment practices. And in both ways, I think governments could be at the forefront of all of these changes. It sounds like it might have a big impact on many critical government systems, pensions, taxes, education. Does it affect all of those areas? It affects all of those. And also healthcare, by the way, that's the other main liability that governments have on their balance sheet because of the promises that they have made to many of us. So in other words, I think you know, governments of all of the stakeholders should be very interested in looking for alternatives. And that's what I propose in the book. What about companies? Is this an opportunity for companies or a problem? I think it's a huge opportunity as long as companies are willing to get rid of some of the assumptions that they've been typically making, right? And one of the biggest assumptions is that, for example, that younger people bring in new skills and therefore that companies better off if it has a younger labor force. That can be true, but we shouldn't uh, forget about uh, some of the benefits of age diversity. So research has confirmed that age diverse teams, for example, are more productive and more creative. 
the interaction among generations in the workplace can be beneficial to the company in terms of productivity, in terms of the quality of the work being done. That's one aspect. The other aspect, of course, is consumption, is consumer markets. So for companies that sell directly to the consumer, the landscape is changing very, very quickly. It used to be the case, if you remember, that younger generations would be the main consumer groups with the highest purchasing power. But that's no longer the case. Within five or six years, the largest age segment in terms of uh, purchasing power in the world will be people about the age of 60. And not only that, there's also a lot of intergenerational connections now in the consumer market. The famous influencers are no longer just young people. We also have uh, people in their 60s, 70s, 80s becoming influencers on TikTok and other social media platforms. All of these are changes that uh, companies, I think, need to better understand if they want to be successful in the future. So the idea of life cycle customer value, the idea that you're, you're better off targeting young consumers perhaps ceases to apply in some cases. I believe so. So the, the idea behind the young consumers, first of all, was that they were the largest group numerically, right? And also with the largest purchasing power. But not only that, if you manage to attract them to your brand, then they remain your customers for a longer period of time, right? Because they have many decades ahead of them. But you see, now things are changing. As I said, the crowd above the age of 60 is going to become the largest age group in terms of not just numbers, but also purchasing power. And so I always like to say that the future belongs to people above the age of 60 which may sound counterintuitive because we used to say all the time, the future belongs to the young. I don't think that's any longer the truth. So the future belongs to people above the age of 60. So Martin, you and I, I guess, are in good luck. Oh, yes. Well, I, I'll be encouraged by that message. I wonder whether there's a political component here because, of course, the different generations have different interests. I mean, perhaps you could argue that a, a young person has a greater stake in building a sustainable future than, say, you or I, yet it's the elderly that occupy positions of power. And I mean, you've done the statistical analysis, so your time where this is right, it's said that the current generation of young people is perhaps one of the first in the post-war era that will be inevitably less well-off than their parents. So I wonder how you see the, the different vested interests of the generations playing out and whether we are destined for some sort of intergenerational conflict as we make this transition. Yeah, so let me turn the argument on its head, right? So the fact that uh, we have now more generations than ever because we live longer, right, then multiplies the possibilities for intergenerational conflict. And especially because governments have made so many promises that, of course, people who are working, typically younger people, paying taxes, are going to be funding. So the possibilities of intergenerational conflict are now much greater than in the past. But that's precisely why we need to move beyond generations. That's precisely why we need to arrive at some kind of post-generational social contract, if you want to put it that way, so that we can minimize those conflicts. So I guess there are some traditional fixes to the demographic forces that you talk about, the ones that are creating the imbalances in healthcare systems and pension systems, like, for instance, delaying the retirement age, like increasing contributions to social security, like allowing immigration of younger workers from other countries. It sounds like they might be insufficient fixes for the sort of sea change that you're talking about. Yes, I, I tend to agree with that. Those are just band-aids, right? Those are quick fixes that may not help us overcome the big problems that we're facing. Having said that, some countries, I think, have a better chance. For example, European countries, the average age at uh, actual age at retirement is in the early 60s, whereas in the United States, it's in the late 60s. So in other words, in Europe, there's so much more scope for increasing the retirement age than uh, there is in the United States. However, having said that, the political backlash where we've seen in France, for example, right? So the same goes for immigration. Immigration is obviously a solution, 
but we are going through a major political backlash against immigration in the world. So in other words, we need to think a little bit more creative. We need to think outside of the uh, usual parameters. And that's why I'm proposing in the book that we need to arrive at some sort of a post-generational society. I guess your, your book is predicated on the logical economic and social outcome against a set of forces, a set of sort of inescapable forces. I'm wondering whether the riots in France tell us that the conclusion might be dictated not by economic logic, but actually by politics, by the sort of the opposition of winners and losers. How do you interpret the current civil unrest in France? Well, I, I think you're right. There is an economic logic, there's a political logic. But you see, the role of politicians is precisely to find common ground between the two, is to persuade people that certain things need to be done because the economics are evolving in a certain way and look for the political angle, right, for the way to make people then think, oh, this is something I should support. That's the role of politicians. Our audience for this podcast is corporate leaders. So do you see companies which are already being very proactive and creative and embracing the trend you're talking about as, as an opportunity? And how would you characterize the profile of a, of a winner from this opportunity versus a sort of a, a laggard, somebody that's mainly going to experience it as friction with their current business model? An increasing number of corporate leaders and companies are keenly aware of some of these issues and they're looking for solutions. There are some of them, of course, that have introduced more changes, for example, when it comes to the consumer markets and the way they approach them. I think uh, cosmetics firms, for example, automobile companies, are farther ahead from others. When it comes to the workforce, there's also a few companies here and there that have been so much more ahead of their time in terms of uh, experimenting with the multi-generational workforce, for example, BMW in Germany. So there are examples here and there, but uh, it's not enough. We need more companies and we need more governments to jump on this uh, bandwagon and change their policies, change their procedures, change the way they're thinking about people in terms of their being workers and consumers in a radically different way. So this change that you're talking about, it, it sort of touches almost every aspect of society and business. And imagine that there's a CEO out there somewhere saying basically, okay, I need to, I need to embrace and understand these forces systematically and build them into my, my strategizing, where would they begin? What would a program to understand and harness these forces to the advantage of, of a corporation look like? Well, I think what they need to do is to start experimenting with some relatively small-scale programs and see what the results are. They need to send a clear message from the top to the organization that outward conditions are changing technologically, demographically, and that no company can survive or can succeed without changing. The only possible response to change is change itself. And then on the basis of those experiments, depending on the outcomes, they can scale up right? their approach to this problem in all of these different manifestations. So I wouldn't try to do everything all at once. I would begin by experimenting some pilot programs here and there, and then learning from that. You know, I'm wondering, as with diversity, diversity breeds more diversity and more concern with different types of diversity. And, you know, it's speculated the end point of, of thinking about diversity as individualism is the same true here. We may start off thinking about the four segments of the sequential life, and then we may think about variance on that. But, but eventually, is it about individual journeys and treating consumers as, as individuals and life journeys on an, on an individual basis? Is that, is that sort of where we're heading? Well, I think the idea is to give people a choice. So up until now, because of the sequential model, we were essentially telling people at different ages, this is what you need to do. And if you don't do it, you're not going to be making progress in life. 
I think we need to empower individuals to make their own choices. So I want to school. I want to go to school now. I want to wait an, another ten years. I want to take two years off because I need to retool myself. I need to learn new things. I think that is the way in which we can win this battle by enabling people to make their own choices. Fascinating topic, Maro. Unfortunately, our time is limited today. But maybe let me finish up with a few more personal questions. So, of course, you yourself have a a career as an academic, as a writer. Does this idea about non-sequential life path affect your career? Are you thinking about a, a second and third career or a non-traditional life journey in some way? Well, you know, I think uh, the career of an academic and definitely of a writer is such that, that you have to reinvent yourself many times. So most of us don't stay just with one topic during our entire careers. We go from one thing to the next. So although I still have the same job, I still have the same office, what we do is we're constantly looking catch the next wave, right? If I may put it that way. It's a very creative uh, kind of occupation. And if you don't do that, you essentially fall behind, especially the younger folks who are coming with a very thorough understanding of technology, a very thorough understanding of some of the big things that are changing in the world. And of course, as, as an academic, you're, you're part of a university. And I think it's fair to say that educational institutions and, and healthcare organizations, probably some of the most conservative and slow-changing institutions in the land. How is Wharton or how are universities in general reacting to this change, which could pull the carpet out from under their feet? They could change their entire business model, essentially. Well, I, I think that you're absolutely right. Especially universities, you know, change occurs very, very slowly, if at all. And right now, I think universities are strategically completely misaligned with the environment. We have done a little bit in terms of online learning, but not enough. And there's so many other things that you know, require strategic change right now. And did you see when it comes to the uh, post-generational society, learning is so important that if our universities don't change, I think it's going to be very hard for society to actually move in that direction. So in addition to governments and corporations, we also need universities and other institutions of learning like schools to start changing because otherwise this is not going to work. So supposing me towards the end of my consulting career decides that I need to retrain in something can Wharton do that for me today, or does Wharton need to create new types of course so that I can do something you know, fast and temporary and, and right now? In some limited ways, you could come to Wharton and other similar business schools to do that. But I don't think we are offering exactly what a lot of people like yourself are looking for, and especially in terms of the cost and the availability and the convenience of it. So we need to do much, much more than that. But you know, you would be joining millions of people around the world in your same age group, who after a career, they're now looking for something else. And, you know, they are learning online or they're attending special universities. There are millions of people around the world doing that. So finally, you're an expert on megatrends, at least in my eyes. So I'm quite curious about which trend you have your eye on next. As you're writing this book, I'm sure you saw a couple of other things that interested you that, that were neglected and, and needed commentary. What's next from Mauro? Well, I guess you're Listeners uh, might be uh, frustrated if I don't mention AI, but I don't think I'm going to uh, focus on AI. I think the next thing that I want to do is focus on the changing of the guard in terms of global leadership potential. I'm not saying that the U.S. is going to be displaced anytime soon or the dollar is going to lose its status as the global currency. But obviously, the change as world is much more multipolar now. So this is something that I don't deal with in the perennials in this book, but I would like to perhaps devote uh, the next uh, two or three years of my life to understanding what are the implications of this changing of the guard in the world. Yeah, that's, that's a great topic. 
I guess one of the unanswered questions of uh, all the CEOs I talk to is essentially what is the new model of the global corporation? Because it's certainly not the multinational from the 70s. It's certainly not the, the World Economic Forum model of the completely borderless corporation. So what is it? That would make a great book, I think. Well, absolutely. And maybe one, you know, one good way to go is to think about the corporation in the future as a network, because networks are very flexible, very adaptive. Yes. Well, uh, we look forward to having you back to discuss that book. So thanks for joining Mara. And again, congratulations on the book. Thank you so much, Martin, for inviting me. So I've been discussing the perennials, the megatrends creating a post-generational society out from St. Martin's Press in August 2023 by Mauro Guillen. I think a really useful and comprehensive guide to a megatrend, which is, it's one trend, but it, it affects everything. It affects us as citizens, consumers, marketers, leaders alike. So I think I'd recommend this to any leader, whether it be in civil society or in business as a really stimulating read. If you like the conversation, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. And as always, we welcome your feedback to bhi at bcg.com.